WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. We're back. Welcome to another edition of Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley. And I'm Joe McFall. It's a pleasure to be back on the air. Or yeah, on, been, on a cu- been a couple of months, right? It's been a while, and we are, I'm just itching to get back in front of the microphone, Raymond. Well, th- that's what we're here to do today. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we have gotten so much mail from you guys you know i never realized until we took a little time off like uh people seem to be enjoying the show so we've gotten a good one together for you today i think joe tell them a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today before we do our announcements well we're talking about the two main psychedelic torchbearers of the last i guess 40 years uh, uh timothy leary and terrence mckenna and so we'll be talking about their lives and what they what they like to philosophize about and what they were into and what they were all about um, with uh, plenty of clips. So this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, we're, we're winding down the series, as many of you know. This is episode 48, and we'll go to the 50th episode. And much like last episode, which was sort of a final wrap-up of uh, the occult, one of the main topics we've been studying over the course of the series, this is going to be sort of like your wrap-up for the psychedelic movement, wouldn't you say, Joe? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it probably as much as the people listening are because a lot of this stuff is going to be new to me, and there's going to be some stories you're going to be telling me, I think, today, Joe. This is really <laughs> this is really your field of expertise. But before we get into that, let's talk about, you know, where we've been, what's been going on these past couple of months. and uh, we're, we're living in different cities now. Yeah, yeah, Joe, you're you're in Atlanta. How do you yeah. like it? I love it, man. I've been here, you know, since August, and it's a great town. I'm glad to be back. We we'll finally escaped the college That's life, right. huh? That's right. That's right. Well, I'm it's officially uh, not a university student anymore. <laughs> well, uh, for me, it's it's not quite that way yet. I've <laughs> still got till May, so uh, here we are in the secret layer. At least here I am up in the secret layer in Athens. Uh, I'm in my personal secret layer in Atlanta. Yeah, but it's a pretty cool place. i got to hand it to you. That Paul Laffoley poster you got is uh, Big Pimpin'. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, you've taken a job down there in Atlanta. You know, I've been wrapping up my studies up here, uh, doing a little bit of activist work, and just finishing up some responsibilities that I had to take care of up here in Athens. And i got to say, I'm glad to be back here in this new year, even though we've only got three episodes to go. They're going to be good ones. And, uh, well, let's just launch right into it. Let's talk about Timothy Leary, Joe. Well, Timothy Leary, as as you probably know, Raymond, is one of the main figures in the psychedelic subculture. Um, he's both loved and hated, and he uh, pretty much, for for many people, started off the whole thing. Without Leary, um, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't have been a, a a psychedelic movement starting in the '60s and continuing until today. What 
got him turned on to all of this in the first place? Well, he was uh, originally um, he was professor at Harvard in the late fifties, and there was a article in Life magazine in May of 1957. It's an article um, written by a guy named R. Gordon Wasson. It documented the use of mushrooms among uh, uh, Mexican Indians, or Mexican, Native Mexicans, Native Mexican Americans, Native American Mexicans, Indians. Indigenous (laughs) people from Mexico. Thank you, thank you. And that was actually a really interesting article um, because that's not something that had ever been exposed to uh, to Western culture. R. Gordon Wasson was one of the first people to really document and and participate in some of these psychedelic rituals. Leary ended up reading this article, of course, and in the in 1960 he went to Cuernavaca and tried psilocybin for the first time. And that was really a defining moment, not only in Leary's life, but but really in, in I think, United States history. Because that's when Leary, you know, his first experience with psychedelics, uh, with psilocybin mushrooms, in 1960, initiated his lifelong journey as a guru, as a philosopher, and still as a psychologist, which is what his academic training was in. So he was sort of looking for medicine. Yeah, you know, you know in a very traditional sense here. The, one of the first source we'll, I'll cite is uh, his his autobiography called Flashbacks, and uh, Flashbacks was released in 1983, and it, it you know as an autobiography. It documents all of this stuff, uh, you know, what was going on in his life at the time. And the way he tells it is that he was, uh, you know, living in Cambridge, you know, in Massachusetts, teaching at Harvard, and he had sort of accepted this kind of late 50s, you know, academic lifestyle where he was, I mean, he was a Harvard professor. He was at the top, you know. But there was something he found just unsatisfying, and that may, may or may not have been the reasons that he chose to to use psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico in 1960. But at the very least, these substances made him reflect on his life and what he was doing and what his contribution to humanity was. After that, he sort of made it his personal crusade to to sort of spread the word, as it were. So was the idea that, well, as we spread the word here, you know, it's also spreading the use of a substance around. And what, what was the the original idea behind that? Was it supposed to be used as a pharmaceutical or as something for the general population? What were, what were his feelings on it? I mean, this is a very interesting question. This is where a lot of the, I guess, hatred uh, for Leary comes into play. On the one hand, as a psychologist, his largest interest initially at least was in the psychotherapeutic uses of of psychedelics and you know he he really saw a place for them in clinical psychology he saw he envisioned uh, psychologists sitting down with their patients both consuming psilocybin or later on LSD and using an 8 to 12 hour trip to to do you know eight to twelve years of psychotherapy, basically it was a, a way to sort of compress um, an entire reg- psychotherapeutic regimen into a day, 
for him, that's how he saw it. And uh, he ended up doing um, a lot of, uh, or at least overseeing a lot of experiments. A few famous ones include, um, there was a prison study where he found, and this, these disputes, or these res- results are sort of disputed, but he found that using psychedelics in a therapeutics, uh, therapeutic environment for prisoners ended up reducing recidivism, which is you know, the... Um, the rate at which prisoners end up returning to prison. So uh, his experimental subjects ended up, um, once they left prison, ended up coming back at a much lower rate than the general population. So this is one of the experiments that Leary uh, participated in. And also, he was interested in, in, in using these to for therapy with alcoholics. Um, there was also a famous experiment called the Good Friday Experiment, which we may have talked about at some point. I don't know if we ever talked about that, but the Good Friday experiment was an experiment with psilocybin. And this, Leary didn't necessarily run this experiment, but he was you know, present for it and kind of oversaw it. I think a graduate student at the time did so. But it's, they got a bunch of uh, participants in a chapel for Good Friday um, and gave them all psilocybin, or gave half of them psilocybin and half of them a placebo. And basically they... they tried to figure out who had a spiritual experience and who didn't. And as it turns out, like uh, it was within, you know, an hour after ingestion, it was pretty clear who had the psilocybin, who had the placebo, the people, (laughs) the people with the placebo were like, Oh, I think I feel something or, you know, the people who had the psilocybin were like standing on the pews screaming, I'm seeing God, you know, (laughs) right. That's a, that's a, another pretty famous experiment. What was the point of the whole thing? Just to see if it could induce a spiritual or religious type experience in yeah, someone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they were, they concluded that it could. And this has actually has been um, not reproduced, but there's actually been some more recent experiments with psilocybin and spiritual experience. Um, I want to say that Johns Hopkins University did an experiment a year or two ago, in which they gave people psilocybin and then um, had them like relax, meditate, listen to music, and uh, then report what they were feeling. And it turned out that um, you know many of the people who got the psilocybin rather than the placebo reported experience, ex- experiences that were among the most significant experiences of their lives, comparable to the birth of a child or the loss of a loved one. Like That's how significant wow. uh, people reported their, their experiences. So this is not something that's necessarily for the faint of heart <laughs> you know. certainly not certainly not and you know let let, it, let us say right away that we are not advocating the use of uh, illegal substances in any way shape or form i think that's a very important point. right but it but i think it's necessary for us all to understand the history of, of these substances and both the good and the bad implications of them whereas yeah. If you watch like the history of drugs on the History Channel or something like that, you're going to get a very sort of one-sided look at it. Or the yeah. people who are going to be proponents are going to be picked because they're sort of nutty. <laughs> right, know? right, right. You know, I would mentioned uh, you know a controversy surrounding this idea of Leary spreading the word. Right. Um, a lot of sort of modern day people in the psychedelic subculture are really torn about Leary in that on the one hand, you know, many people would not have had exposure to these substances had it not been for Leary. But on the other hand, 
many people would have not had exposure to these substances if not for Leary. You know, the, right. the, the idea being that these, that Leary sort of spoiled it for everybody exactly. by letting it out into the mainstream. Exactly, so. like he opened Pandora's box anyway. And there was a uh, many people see kind of like an. Uh, not necessarily a feud between Leary and Algis Huxley, who is, you know, a 40s and 50s author. He wrote Brave New World. And um, anyway, he, he, he was also a psychedelic enthusiast. Huxley was. And he was, he, he was an advocate of keeping it sort of secret, I guess. Um, in other words, not making it something that's available for mass consumption, keeping these substances for a kind of intellectual, spiritual elite. So if you take sort of that viewpoint on the one hand, where Huxley is sort of an elitist about about these substances, and Leary is more of a advocate for popular use, although he never came out and said, you know, everyone should use these things. He, he actually advocated licensing uh, psychologists and psychiatrists to use them and, you know, not letting them, not just making them available on store shelves, you know, but but making people have to go through you know, through channels to be able to use them and using them in controlled settings. And right, but, but wasn't he later accused of production of LSD? I mean, didn't, didn't he help to get, not just ideologically, but production-wise, wasn't he in some way involved with this? No, not to my knowledge. I mean, there, okay. there may have been some groups that were associated with Leary who did produce LSD, but not. I don't believe that he had any direct involvement in the production. Do you think that the popular culture at the time in the 60s tried to paint that picture? I mean, I don't know where that idea would have come from in me. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think there's a lot of there's like like a lot of misconceptions about his role in all of this. And I think part of that is why there's like a controversy and why he's a controversial figure even among psychedelic enthusiasts, contemporary psychedelic enthusiasts. But the way I see it, I mean, what I find most interesting, and to me, I think that uh, if you take a minute rather than to to sort of follow the rumors and misconceptions about Leary, um, rather than doing that, actually read the kinds of things that he was writing at the time and the kinds of things that he was saying at the time then it, a, a whole different picture of Leary comes out. And I think that might... Raymond, let's let's go ahead and play our first clip. Sounds great. This one uh, is actually recorded uh, from a short video on YouTube. Have I answered the question, who am I? Mm-hmm. Well, I confront it all the time. As I said earlier, we, we think of ourselves as uh, uh, members of a very traditional organization of men who have been asking the question, uh, what's what, and uh, uh, who is man, and uh, what is this energy process all about. I went into psychology 20 years ago, uh, not necess- basically as a career. Uh, I was simple-minded enough to take seriously the the mottos of psychology, that uh, psychology is supposed to be finding out uh, what goes on with uh, the human being. And uh, five years ago, uh, by accident in Mexico, uh, I took uh, Mexican mushrooms, the so-called magic mushrooms of Mexico, and um, I learned more about 
my brain and its possibilities, and I learned more about psychology in the five hours after taking these mushrooms than I had in the preceding 15 years of studying, doing research in psychology. And since that day, which is just exactly five years ago this week, uh, I've done practically nothing except uh, continue this exploration. Uh, it was triggered off by this accidental experience in Mexico. Of finding out what are the range and limits of consciousness and attempting to develop maps and languages for charting these uh, incredible realms within our own skull that not just of what's going on around you and inside of you but also consciousness of where you came from and the long uh, telephone wire of history which goes back two billion years which is buried somewhere inside uh, your brain and mine we are uh, neurologically and biochemically in touch with uh, thousands of generations that came before us and the, the record of these previous uh, uh, evolutionary attempts are there it's just that our mental symbolic minds uh, can't decode these messages and men have been discovering this uh, experience and developing methods to get high or to go out of their mind for thousands of years and uh, LSD is simply the uh, modern uh, yoga made possible by uh, advances in science which uh, have produced these incredible chemicals which we call psychedelic drugs okay yeah so one of the things that you you noticed from that clip initially and this is i think a common theme in both leary's writing as as well as when we start talking about mckenna the ideas of finding a language to talk about these things. There's also, and especially in Leary, given his psychological background, his fascination with the human brain. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about, about any psychoactive substance, be it LSD or, you know, coffee, uh, is that they perturb normal consciousness in such a way that it lets us understand what normal consciousness is. And you know how uh, people who study, for instance, people who study language will often study people who, who have language disorders. And that helps them understand you know, normal language functioning, for instance. Um, I think you know, what Leary is getting at here, and I think what a lot of people will agree with who, are, who are, have looked into these things, is that um, the perturbation of consciousness is is a really good way to study normal, ordinary consciousness. So that's, I think, one of Leary's motivations. He's very interested in, in the brain and how these things work and what they do. Does he see... Or how does he deal with the negative consequences? How does he address them? Well, for him, one of his main uh, contributions to, to uh, the psychedelic movement was this idea of set and setting. Which means that if, if you're going to dabble in these substances uh, at all, at the very least, um, you know you're, you you should uh, you should be do them in the right setting. In other words, something that's not going to sort of uh, arouse conflict in any way, in ways that you don't have to deal with your ordinary responsive life responsibilities, but also have the right mindset. In other words, you know, don't do them if you're depressed or um, obsessing about money or, you know, relationships or whatever. In other words, set and setting is really the key to combat 
the negative consequences. Uh, Leary claims to never have had anyone anyone that he'd ever done any psychedelics with. He claims to have never been around for a bad trip. It's interesting, you know. I f- actually find that a little hard to believe, but I agree. I but agree. Uh, yeah, but but really, I think his point is that you know, if you are prepared, not only mentally and physically, but also environmentally, which is what set and setting is really about, then uh, there aren't negative consequences. That's maybe what he would argue. And again, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that either way. But but that's sort of it was his take on the negative consequences. That there are ways that you can significantly reduce the chance of having having these negative consequences and really the you know as with any illegal drug i think the most negative consequences are often due to their illegality and sort of that's a that's a um that's a consequence of our war on drugs i think more than anything i i agree with you 100 percent on that now um so when lsd hits the picture you know which is sort of the, it's sort of the second second substance he starts experimenting with here yeah um does he leave the talk of psilocybin mushrooms behind? Uh, does he become a total advocate for LSD, or does he continue to talk about these substances in general? He seems to talk more more so about LSD in, through the mid mid to late 60s and onward um, than about anything else. Um, even though his primary experiences were with psilocybin, where, you know, which psilocybin is a naturally occurring compound, you know, found in mushrooms that grow out of the ground. It's all you know, plant and fungus based, like many of the psychedelics are. But LSD is different in that you know it's laboratory, it's manufactured in a laboratory. Although it is, it is manufactured from plant-based components. There is a substance called LSA, which can be found in uh, like Hawaii, Hawaiian baby Woodrow's seeds and morning glory seeds and um, ergot. <sighs> fungus oh hawaiian woodrose seeds is that what you said oh, yeah hawaiian no. baby woodrose seeds <laughs> we we know somebody joe <laughs> that had quite a horrible experience on those one time i won't tell you who it was <laughs> our, our listeners might be familiar with him though <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah i so. think i think the hawaiian woodrose seeds have some toxic very toxic uh, side effects. Yeah, yeah. So. In, fa- in fact, um, you know, they, they come from they originally LSD was originally synthesized. Um, where LSA is you know one of the principal precursors to LSD, and Albert Hofman, who originally synthesized LSD, used uh, ergot-based LSA. And ergot is a, a a grain, a fungus on grain that uh, has caused outbreaks of psychosis. And is can be quite dangerous, actually, it, if not uh, carefully, <laughs> carefully uh, taken. Um, right. And so, so that's that's actually not surprising that we know someone who would have had a bad experience with this. <laughs> the thing about it is, I mean, you know, Hawaiian baby Woodrow's you can buy it online. Morning Glory seeds you can buy at Home Depot. Right. You know, <laughs> and these things are your sort of local hardware store psychedelics that right. again i mean they they are they are psychoactive compounds you you know it's not actually legal to ingest morning glory seeds although you can go buy them you can't eat them uh, by law uh, because lsa is a controlled substance but you know i would i would definitely caution our listeners not to go out and buy these things because many of the um i think uh, the government required 
uh, seed sellers to put some sort of chemicals on the seeds that they sell in order to keep people from ingesting these things. So, you know, do what you will at your own risk. <laughs> All right, right. So let's keep going with the story of Leary. He, he had troubles with the law. Right before oh, it was yeah. over with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he went through through the '60s, and let's talk a little about before his his the beginnings of his troubles started when um, he was living at this estate, the Millbrook estate. Now, in the early '60s, uh, these three three siblings, Peggy, Billy, and Tommy Hitchcock, and they were L- heirs to the Mellon fortune. The Mellons, like a uh, you know Carnegie Mellon, right? Yeah, yeah. So Andrew William Mellon is sort of like the the he was a banker, industrialist, philanthropist, etc. Um, in the he died in the 30s, I guess. Heirs to his fortune got interested in Leary in the early 60s, and they sort of helped Leary acquire the use of this mansion called the Millbrook Estate. Uh, it's in up in the town of Millbrook in New York, and so Leary got a bunch of people out on Millbrook, and that's where they stayed for several years. And uh, basically, it was a basically like an experimental commune where. Um, from the way I've heard it told, you know, they, a bunch of people would just take LSD and hang out at this state and have presentations for each other. And it, l- later on, it was actually bus- raided a few times. Many of the raids were um, led by G. Gordon Liddy, who, of course, we hear about later on in connection with the Watergate break-ins. Right. But Liddy uh, ended up busting Leary a few times, or at least raiding the Millbrook estate. I don't know if he ever actually arrested him at Millbrook. Hmm, um, probably at Nixon's personal orders. Right, right. Well, the funny thing is is that through the 80s, I think, Leary and Liddy ended up going on lecture debate tours together, <laughs> which is kind of an odd thing. But And the Millbrook estate is, is uh, legendary in that not only was it sort of where Lear, where G. Gordon Liddy got his start, but also um, you know the the Mary Pranksters visited once, and uh, you know the Millbrook is sort of where Leary ended up formulating a lot of his ideas that were to come about later on. Did uh, Cary Grant ever show up there? The I'm famous not actor. Sure. I don't know, but uh, Cary Grant. I know that he was he was an advocate for LSD use in the late fifties. This is before. Or late fifties and early sixties, I guess. This is before uh, a lot of people had ever heard of the substance. Cary Grant had used it in psychoanalysis, which again is what Leary had originally advocated for. And yeah, and when he divorced his wife, his wife said in the divorce that he she had he had made her take LSD or something uh, like that. Like, and I think that really probably didn't help his case very much. Right, right. I don't right. remember which which famous Hollywood starlet he was getting divorced from at the time, but Right. Also uh, during this time, I guess by the late 60s and early 70s, um well actually in, in 1967, one of the most famous quotes from Timothy Leary was uttered at uh, the Human BN, which is 30,000 hippies in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, and Leary was scheduled to speak and he had had a whole speech written up. And when he got on stage, he just uttered six words, which were to sort of ring through the next decades. It was, turn on, tune in, drop out, which is a very famous um, Leary Leary phrase. Um, What that really meant for Leary was, you know, turn on, meaning turn on your brain. And uh, we've got, I've actually got a good clip that'll sort of go along with this little story. 
turn on your brain, tune it in, and drop out of society in whatever way you see fit. And that's that's sort of what Leary is really known for for saying. That's kind of his thing, you know. Um, let's actually play that that clip. This next clip is from a, a recording that Leary did. Um, in I think 1969, and it's uh, it's actually a music track. It's called "Live and Let Live." Jimi Hendrix actually played on this album, not on this particular track, but oddly enough, um, in a, on a later track on the same album, Jimi Hendrix played. But this is this clip is uh, I find this clip really interesting. It's sort of Leary's take on what it means to turn on. Live and let live. We say to every human being, black, white, left, right, brother, sister, live and let live. Human brothers and sisters, let's live and let live. The aim of the game is to feel real, real, good, good. The aim of the game is to feel real, real good. The aim of the game is to feel real, real good. What do you turn on when you turn on? What do you turn on when you turn on? What do you turn on when the rhythm of the galaxy? What do you turn, turn on, on when you turn on? Turn off. Free energy. Structure. Release. Control. Turn on. Turn on. What do you turn on? The oscillating rhythm of turn on, turn off, expansion, contraction, turn on, turn off, the body breathing to the old basic rhythm, turn on, turn off, open, close. In, out, contract, release, speed up, slow down, get free, get hooked. The cellular trip is through the body. The proportions remain astronomical. The mammalian body, the human body, incomprehensibly collective. Trillions of cells centering around structured organs, all interconnected, humming with market transactions, weather reports, pollution ratings, stellate arterials, watery canals jammed with plasma planets, hematological mesnerian clusters, white corpuscle comets, endocrine spaceships commuting, the whole monstrous galaxy leaping through terrestrial networks of living forms, all in communication. An 18-inch layer of slime covering a metal rock planet and every isolated organism around a 25,000-mile breathing pipeline in close connection to the one whole, the biological web. What reincarnation center, densely packed genetic energy, 
and outward bound from this compressed center, the web of molecules weaving the cellular fabric. What do you turn on? Expand turn on. Hooking into the organic network surrounding. The cerebral headquarters ring by a sensory dew line of billion cell stations for receiving and transmitting energies from within and from without the somatic galaxy. The common sense organs. Odor, taste, touch, balance, temperature, posture, movement, light waves, night waves, sound words. Each sense organ operates on the same rhythm. On, off, open up when you turn, close down, alternating current. While the body galaxy centers on a densely packed DNA strand, every organ constellation within the body's zodiac orbits around the brain. What do you turn on? The brain. You turn on. Galactic headquarters of the nervous system, filling corporeal space with flashing electric messages. What do you turn Out and back, off and turn on. Synaptic conversations. The cunning amino acid architects, snugly protected in miniaturized general motor plant engineering cell chambers, design more and more complex fissure bodies. When you this year's standard equipment, a 13 billion cell brain hooked up to stereophonic audition receivers, bifocal self-modulating auto-tuning retinal video cameras, cell battery-powered kinesthetic magic eye shock adjusters, gustatory liquid analyzers, and lingual pollution detectors, self-regulatory nasal gas traps for analysis and evaluation of aerial chemical content. Around and around, floating somatic constellations, cycling, circling. The major structures have been identified for millennia by astrobiologists, philosopher priests, healers, observers of the fleshly heavens. Each unit of energy in this cosmic dance, charged with attraction repulsion forces, pulling towards, escaping from. Intensely contracted nuclear energy at galactic center explodes, scattering suns hurtling out across a million light years. Each stellar fragment, itself highly charged, spins through web fabric fields of radiant energy. What do you turn on when you turn on? Yeah, so that was uh, "Live and Let Live" uh, a track. It's it's you can find it online. It's actually originally from a CD called "You Can Be Anyone." This time around is the name of the CD. It's very interesting. Do you think it was designed to be listened to by people who are using these substances? Probably, like probably. while they're in the middle of their trip or whatever. Most, most likely, most likely. Um, at the very least, like, you know, Leary, one of the things about Leary is that he seemed to be very into experimental art. Um, it's, I think one of the things that he was interested in as a way to enhance 
not only, you know, uh, psychedelic experiences, but also just ordinary, ordinary experience, ordinary consciousness. So it could have been either something to augment a trip or could have been something to sort of induce higher states with, in people who are not under the influence, you know? Interesting. Very interesting. So he wrote, he did music sort of, and we're going to see some of this later with Terrence McKenna, right? A lot of, a lot of the clips you, you end up with have some sort something going on in the background, some sort of very psychedelic sounding music, very yeah. repetitive and long in form. Yeah. You know, typically. You know, one of the things about that clip is that, you know, that's from the late sixties, which is, you know, given that they didn't really have digital technology, digital recording technology back then, it's kind of, I think, you know, a little bit before its time, at least in terms of its production, you know, I'd agree. I'd agree. You didn't really hear a lot of stuff like that back then. Um, let's talk a little bit about Raymond, about, uh, his run-ins with the law, which happened, you know, late in the sixties into the early seventies. He, uh, ended up being arrested a few times in um in the late 60s i guess his first arrest was in 1965 but he was arrested again in 1968 his second arrest was for two roaches two marijuana roaches which he claims were planted by the guy who arrested him long story short in 1970 he received a 10-year sentence for that offense so we're talking less than a gram of marijuana here Probably easily. I think. <laughs> I think at the time that was the longest sentence given for that amount of marijuana ever. So the judge, they were just trying to throw the book at him to get him out of the public. Basically. Yeah, in many ways he was a political prisoner, and this actually uh, brings up sort of a, a great story. Um, you know, before before Leary went to Harvard, he was he was at Berkeley, and I think he may have done his graduate work at Berkeley in California. So he was, uh, at the very least, a professor at Berkeley before he went to Harvard, and this would have been in the 50s. You know, he was a, per- he was a personality theorist, is what he was. He was uh, his, his training was in assessing people's personalities. And so when he was, you know, in, the, in 1970, when he was sentenced, he was given a psychological test to figure out whether what risk he was of escape. In other words, should we put this guy, you know, in minimum security, maximum security, or what? Turns out, and I guess the people giving him these tests at the time didn't really know that didn't know this, but it turns out that he wrote, designed some of the tests that he ended up taking. <laughs> so he ended up in minimum security, I'm he, guessing. Yeah, he ended up in minimum security. <laughs> well, in 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 1971, or later in late 1970, from minimum from minimum security prison. With the help of the uh, the weathermen, the Weather Underground, and um, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which sort of paid the fee to the Weather Underground to help Leary escape, and like twenty five thousand dollars or something, yeah, like something that. like that. Something like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love sort of uh, treated Leary like their guru, um, and they may have been involved in production of LSD. I'm not sure, but um, so he like shimmied over like a, on a rope or a cable yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, he like shimmied over a cable where the weathermen were waiting in a car on the other side, and they already had like a a fake passport ready for him, and like the, uh, they smuggled him and his wife into Algeria, where uh, he 
ended up hanging out with Eldridge Cleaver, who was, you know, was a former Black Panther, um, his sort of Black Panthers party party's government in exile in Algeria. And right. uh, Leary, Leary ended up uh, escaping from Eldridge Cleaver because he was he said that Cleaver sort of treated him like a prisoner as well. So he tr- he escaped Eldridge Cleaver, fled to Switzerland. Um, we hung out there for a while. Uh, anyway, he ended up after a while getting caught in 1973. So he's on the lam for three years at this point and gets caught and extradited from Kabul, Afghanistan. Which didn't have an extradition treaty at the time, so it was sort of an illegal extradition. extradition. So he what was, was he doing in Kabul? I'm not sure what he was doing. I mean, you know, he's a fugitive from U.S. drug laws at the time. So he was in Switzerland, he went to Vienna, Beirut, finally ended up in Afghanistan. He may have just been changing planes, actually, where when they caught him, at, they got him out at the airport. So he was flown back to the U.S., and put in maximum security prison and the way Larry tells it is uh, I think he was at uh, in Sing Sing or no he, he was put straight into um, Folsom prison in solitary confinement in a cell right next to Charles Manson for a little while weird yeah yeah so they get to know each other I guess they chatted some. Uh, he talks about this in his autobiography in flashbacks, uh, where he's he's in solitary in a cell next to Manson, um, and they're sort of trading books and trading philosophy and stuff. It's very strange stuff. Um, he was finally released from prison uh, in 1976 by then Governor Jerry Brown. Um, so that's sort of where during the time actually Leary. You know, it's interesting. We maybe we got into some um, stuff about Robert Anton Wilson having uh, alien contact around that time in the early seventies. Yeah, I remember Wilson show. Um, I don't know if we talked about Philip K. Dick also having experiences with alien contact all around that time, but um, we, we may talk about this uh, about Terrence McKenna having experiences with alien contact also around that time. So um, did did uh, Timothy Leary have some of this going on as well? Yeah, while he was in solitary, he claimed to have had very uh, dreams that I guess were very similar to the ones that Wilson was having, where he would be visited by aliens. I believe from from this from Sirius. It's interesting stuff. Uh, he he wrote a few books while he was in prison. Starseed, Neurologic, and Terra 2, which um, this is where he started advocating uh, space travel. Um, as a way to sort of, I don't know, uh, he, he had long said that LSD was a kind of a preparation for human beings to go into space. Um, and this is sort of where uh, he started making proposals for space colonization and stuff like that. Very interesting stuff during this time. So how did he, so when he got out of prison, what happened? Well, he settled down in California and basically lived the rest of his life. Uh, he ended up um, you know, as I said, he went on tour for a while with G. Gordon Liddy. He wrote several more books, still lectured a lot, remarried a few times, you know, that sort of thing. Ended up, li- you know, living out the rest of his life as sort of a Hollywood, or Hollywood personality or really kind of a general countercultural icon. He got really into uh, computers in the late 70s and throughout the 80s and was a real advocate for cyberculture before anyone really knew what that meant. Leary was talking about that in the early 80s, about sort of the coming 
interconnectedness of cyberspace. And so that that really ended up being his main focus throughout the 80s and 90s. Well, it looks like it paid off. I mean, I mean yeah, sure. we are listening to a podcast, right? We now. are. We so. are. Leary would be proud. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because he, it's, some people he was, ended up being sort of like a washed up old hippie. You know, he, he would he would still do um, still do lectures and stuff. Let's actually get to the next clip um, because he still had a lot to say about about culture and consciousness and um, you know and fighting authority and stuff like that. This actually is this next clip is really good. This is called Sound Bites from the Counterculture, and this this was found uh, online at leary.ru. The message. It's very simple. Think for yourself and question authority. You know, it's interesting about the 60s revolution, cultural revolution, which then moved to Europe in the 70s when Franco died and when uh, Salazar, was it, in Portugal died, one after one as these tight old geriatric Cold War dictatorships loosened up up popped this new spirit. But what was it? It wasn't anti-communist, it wasn't communist. What was it? How could you describe it? You know, the, the Chinese situation, how could, what did they want? Uh, the, the Chinese dictators, well, they want American capitalism and the running dogs of Wall Street. That's what they want. Well, bullshit. I mean, you know, you know, that's not right. What those students wanted was they wanted to change their own major. I was talking to some leftists, some liberals at the LA, you know, real liberals, LA Weekly, Jay Levinson, Jay said, well, what those Chinese students want, after all, they just want Cadillacs. Well, goddamn right, Jay. They want Cadillacs, uh, they want VWs, they want surfboards, they want uh, uh, soap, they want blue jeans, they want, I mean, they want the fucking option to decide how to live their life. They want to select their majors. That's what the, the whole movement of, of, of post-industrial information age, the movement of individualism is not to leave communism, go to capitalism, go back to fundamentalist Islam or Christianity. People want to have the choice, the option of deciding how to live their lives. In China, they wanted to be able to, to date a girl in public. When I say that this political movement, <laughs> the aim of which is to choose your major, has never happened in human history before, now let me demonstrate or try to prove to you why I feel that way. The notion of thinking for yourself, making your own life decisions, navigating your own career throughout your life, of choosing your own life, of choosing how you want to dress, of choosing where you want to live. Now, now really, that's pretty recent, as is the notion of, of progress, for that matter, revolution. Throughout most of human history, it, the notion of coming before people and say, I want to encourage you young people to think for yourself, you know, was simply out of the question. In a hunter-gatherer society, if I were to go to a New Guinea tribe and say, tribal elders, gather the young people here, I want to urge them to think for themselves. They'd say, what do you mean, man, think for yourself? Choose your major. There's only one major, hunter or gatherer, you know. Um, uh, so I can understand that. However, in 1989, in post-industrial America, if you have 50 million Americans on a full moon loony Sunday night at Sunday school praying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down on green pastures. Well, if your Lord and God is a shepherd, I ask you, what does that make you? Bah! <laughs> I mean, 
Everything has changed. God is no longer a big shepherd. God is no longer the Lord in heaven, uh, the ruler of all the mighty things like that. The human being is not a sheep. The human being is not a serf. Now, the human being is a worker or a manager. And in the factory assembly line society that we've all grown up through, you're born in a hospital, you're born in a factory, you're born in a little assembly line, and then you brought home, and then the, you go off to school, kindergarten, first grade, all the way up, and, and uh, you're uh, the god of the, and the prophets of the industrial mechanical age are, of course, uh, engineers, and uh, the good human being. The good human being in industrial society is prompt, dependable, reliable, productive, efficient, and, of course, replaceable <laughs> as part of the assembly line. The average American household watches television 7.4 hours a day. That means that the average American household sits like vegetoid octopus slugs with their eyeballs sucking out all this information and the nose is pressed to an aquarium which is called the television tube. The average American lives on the other side of the television screen in this digital, imaginary, fantastic Disneyland world. Uh, it's much more important to him or her than the, than the real world. The average American uh, is, feels closer to Bill Cosby or to um, Dan Rather or to um, Mickey Mouse than to the neighbors next door. It's awesome, it's scary, it's frightening how real these television... Matter of fact, I've never seen George Bush. He only exists to me as a cluster of electrons on my screen. Matter of fact, uh, I know Mickey Mouse better than I do George Bush. Because everybody's catching on now that who controls the screen controls society. Who controls the screen that you look at controls your mind. The upside of that is you have individually got to control what's on the screens that you look at. And within two or three years, uh, we will have available software and hardware. The hardware will be a glove, which will allow you to move things on the other side of the screen, a helmet with uh, small screens here, so you'll actually be seeing and viewing as though you're on the other side of the screen. Every time you turn here, you're turning around inside the screen. A little body vest, so that if uh, someone reaches out and strokes you on the other side of the screen, you can feel it here. Get it? So you're wearing your computer, and you are no longer at the aquarium window peering through at what's going on inside Dan Rather and all that shit. You're there. So obviously we don't have this body glove, you know, set up. As Lear was saying, I guess that was a clip from 1989. But, um, you know, what, what he's getting at is something we do have, something that you know a lot of people didn't know about in 1989, which is worldwide interconnectedness, and uh, you, you do get to choose what's on your screen now, unlike, unlike our parents who lived through the 60s and had television, and basically the only control over the, they had over their screen was uh, the, the knob to change the channel, and they had, you know, four choices. So, you know, although Leary, Leary isn't necessarily a, a dead-on prophet, about these things, he's certainly foreseeing something that people, even in 1989, very few people could imagine. Well, I think we're still getting closer and closer to what he was talking about. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about the uh, 
the, the stroking thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it sounds very interesting to me, and I wouldn't mind trying something like that out. I've heard sure. that certain flight helmets, like for pilots, are like that, where mm. you can sort of look around and see what's on either side of you. It's a review oh, finder. Yeah, yeah so, this, that, te- that kind of technology is certainly in development. <clears throat> you know, We'll probably see what he's talking about with, within our lifetimes. So, uh, what else we got to say about Leary, man? Uh, not much. I mean, it's just that, you know, he he was an extremely influential figure, and I think more so than many people give him credit for, not only because of his advocacy for chemical-induced mystical experiences, but also his advocacy for counterculture in general. And, you know, this is something that carries through not just a psychedelic subculture, but subculture generally speaking uh anti-authoritarian culture generally speaking you know even for people and movements that aren't directly related to psychedelics they have sort of been infused with with um this idea that we are individuals in control of our own space and that's how the entire world should be that we shouldn't be fettered by culture the world is yours that's right that's right so you want to uh, play old Timothy Leary out uh, with the Space Ghost clip? We could either do that or play McKenna in with a Leary clip of Leary introducing McKenna. Let's just do both. Let's uh, okay. let's play the Space Ghost clip, then we'll go yeah. to a break, and then we'll yeah. come back and start talking about Terrence McKenna. Our next guest has been called Uncle Tim, the guru of psychedelic utopians. Please welcome citizen Dr. Timothy Leary. Welcome to the show, Dr. Leary. Now, Timothy, tell me, what is your secret identity? I'm an outlaw, I'm a, a counterculture person, and that's where I like to be, out there on the, on the front lines uh, with my friends. What sort of superpowers do you possess? Oh, we flood your eyeballs, over, overload your, uh, your earballs, uh, give you patterns and swirls of color, and uh, making you feel better and better, yeah, uh, that's... The power of using light to uh, to enhance consciousness and to alter consciousness is uh, the tricks I'm using now, and uh, so far they're legal, uh, Space Code. Now, Tim, people depend on me to defend their planets and save millions of innocent lives from impending doom. What do you feel people expect from you? Uh, Richard Nixon called me. I'm proud of this, uh, Space Code. He called me the most dangerous man alive, and of course I tried to be as dangerous to him as I could be. Um, outsiders uh, like me a lot because uh, I've given the man a fits and uh, so I got a lot of friends out there let me ask you one thing are friends just enemies who uh, anyway I fly you don't yeah I'm a superhero you're not it's all right you must be in awe of my extraordinary powers I agree uh, you're my idol and I hope in my next uh, Incarnation, I'll, I'll be floating up there with you, Space Coach. Yeah, whatever. Thanks, Tim. Come see us again, won't you? Oh, no. Okay, that's it. Let's go get some tacos. All right. <laughs> so that was Timothy Leary on Space Ghost. Uh, what was the name of that show, Space Ghost? Coast, Coast to Coast. Coast, that's yeah, right. Yeah. George Lowe was the guy that does the voice of Space Ghost. That was actually a really, really early episode, I think. From just, I believe that may have been the very first 
interview of the very first episode. I wouldn't be surprised at yeah. all because you can tell the Space Ghost voice isn't quite developed yet. We yeah. actually met him at Dragon Con one oh, year. Okay. He's, a, he's a real cool guy. So you see, cool, you, see cool, cool. you see him around, you know, in Atlanta at least. So well, uh, I guess shortly after that, Leary um, ended up. I guess in 90, 1995, he found out that he was terminally ill with prostate cancer. And the last year or so of his life, he ended up dying in May, late May of 1996. The last year or so, he became, uh, I guess, all you could, I guess you could call it a death advocate. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, he was facing facing death he knew he was going to die within you know 12 months and um he he spent the last years years of year of his life or so trying to to come to grips with death as his sort of final trip and trying to face it in a dignified and humorous way in a way that only leary and and always leary would do so the final chapter of that is that his remains ended up getting uh, shot into space along with the writer of Star Trek, what's the guy's name, Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry? Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, the, but their, their remains both got shot into space uh, together in, I guess, 97 or 98. So that was Larry. What a cool guy. Yeah. Kind of spacey. Yeah. Kind of had that, <laughs> that, that weird late 50s-like hip hipster uh, accent going, but yeah. uh, I like yeah. him. I really like him. And uh, So Terrence McKenna, the guy we're going to talk about next, he's sort of like, one generation down, right? Yeah, yeah. Terrence McKenna, should we just go ahead, Raymond? We're going to have a break. Uh, let, let's, yeah, let's take a break right quick, and then okay. uh, we'll be back in just a minute, and we'll talk a little bit more about Terrence McKenna. You're listening yeah. to Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. We'll be right back. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. I'd like you all to welcome uh, Timothy Leary. Terrence McKenna means a great deal to me. Uh, I would say he's one of the five or six most important people on the planet. I can't even think of any others. Uh, <laughs> short-term memory loss, but... <laughs> By the way, the role that Terrence is playing right now is one that takes not only vision, but it also takes fucking courage. <laughs> we don't have to play the musical part if we don't want to. If we just want just that, like, ten seconds of Leary introducing McKenna. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> We're back. Yeah, we had to kind of cut that clip down. There was some really, really cheesy music mixed in at the end of it. So, uh... The the bad part about that is that there's the that that clip was Timothy Leary introducing Terrence McKenna and one of the things um, that he says I believe later on a part that got edited out from the clip that I found was that Terrence McKenna is the T Timothy Leary of the '90s so in many ways Timothy Leary sort of passed his torch down to Terrence McKenna to be sort of the the psychedelic guru although McKenna ended up playing that role very differently from the way Leary did. Right, and McKenna ends up being, in some way, a significant f uh, figure in the rave counterculture. Is that yeah, correct? I, yeah, and part I think part of that is just by virtue of the time and place that he was he was working in. Um, he happened to be 
philosophizing about psychedelics, among many other things, at the very same time when psychedelics were making a sort of resurgence in our culture in the in the early to mid-90s. Now, he had been really talking about these things since the early 70s, but he really gained his prominence around the time when Rave was also making its big comeback. But he had been lecturing for years prior to that. So what's his story? He was a child of the 60s. He did his time at Berkeley. He did his time with LSD. He was he was born uh, in 1946, so you know post-war baby boomer type. He grew up in Colorado, but I guess ended up and uh, attending high school in California. He read Algis Huxley at a very early age, I guess when he was around 16, or even earlier than that. His first, it's interesting that we had mentioned Morning Glory Seeds earlier, that was his, ended up being his first psychedelic experience in his teens, was through Morning Glory Seeds. And that sort of ended up setting the stage for him later on in life. He, I don't think, experimented with drugs again until he was at Berkeley in San Francisco in the mid-60s. Um, I guess he you know, smoked pot in 1965, tried LSD soon after, soon after that. The way uh, McKenna has told it is that he was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. He was at Berkeley in 19, from 1965 to 1969, which would have been the time to be at Berkeley. It's like the center of the counterculture. It was like Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco or something like gra- that. It was ground zero. Greenwich, was Greenwich where, Village in New York is just like that, basically. Yeah, and that's that's where everything was happening. After he grad, he ended up graduating from uh, Berkeley with a Bachelor of Science in Ecology and, Conf- and Conservation. Um, then he went to teach English in Japan, traveled through India and South Asia for a little while. He was actually collecting butterflies um, and smuggling hash into the U.S. during that time. And this is, you know, he's in his late teens. You know, he's like. 19, 20, or 21 years old, early 20s. His his mother died in 1971, uh, so he would have been, he was born in 46, so he would have been about 24, 25 years old. And he and his brother, his younger brother Dennis, and a few friends decided to go into the Amazon to search for a psychedelic brew called uh, Okohi, which is, I guess, sort of like ayahuasca. It contains a DMT dimethyltryptamine. He had already sort of experimented with pure DMT, smoking DMT at the time, or before then. But this, his experience in the Amazon was really a defining moment in his life. And he was, you know, like I said, early 20s at the time. Uh, he and his brother go down there, and this is all written uh, in his book called True Hallucinations, which is sort of like his memoirs of uh, his trip to the Amazon, which... And this is a thing that I've found with, you know, I've read a lot of Terrence McKenna. I think I've read all of his books, which end up being only like four or five books. But he has, you know, unlike Timothy Leary, McKenna has, I would say, scores, possibly hundreds of hours of lectures available online that you can find. You can go download them. I mean, there's just a lot of audio material for Terrence McKenna, which is good in that you get to really get what this guy is talking about. But for people like us, Raymond, it's hard because it's really hard to find good clips of stuff. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of digging. But, I mean, part of that is you can open up any MP3 of a Terrence McKenna lecture and go to any any point in time and find something good. You know, it's all really, really amazing stuff. And it's a lot of different topics. 
Too. Yeah, he, he he had an extremely broad interest, not only in psychedelics, but also but the implications of psychedelics, and also uh, he was interested in time, in physics, and time, and and evolution, language, and culture. And like Leary, he was also interested in counterculture and authoritarian resistance and um, and this sort of thing. Now he kind of was a almost an outsider figure, although he was well known in kind of like new age subculture. He kind of despised new age, new ageism, I guess, because it would seem very fake to him and kind of flighty. In the way, Raymond, you said that Leary kind of sounded like a you know airheady or or new agey type. McKenna sort of prided himself on being scholarly and analytical about his subjects. Well, uh, we have another clip coming up, right? Yeah, let's actually go into um, this first clip. This is some a little bit about um, his interest in time and what he would end up calling a time wave zero, novelty wave. And um, we may have talked about Terrence McKenna in reference to 2012. This, and actually, this clip may not even be directly related, but <laughs> uh, but it's it's about information and novelty. Let's just play it and see what happens. Teilhard de Chardin, for those of you who don't know his work, was a Jesuit uh, paleontologist and primatologist who wrote in the 1950s uh, the Omega Point, the phenomenon of man. And in a way, nothing I say or little that anybody has said about cyberspace, about the meltdown of humanity into some electronic collectivity has been surpassed by Teilhard de Chardin. He had this idea that human beings were on this earth and that they would generate what he called the new sphere. And the new sphere was simply the atmosphere of electronic and radar and radio and telegraphic and television signals which surround the earth that we would build a new atmosphere as it were a technosphere of information and information is a very key concept in all of this what I call novelty you could arguably call information what I call habit you could arguably call uh, uh, noise and you know this is a vision of, of being where there's a struggle between these two antithetical forces. One, described by the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. The other, described by novelty theory, Prigogine's non-equilibrium thermodynamics, etc., etc. And, and they are, in every situation, locked in struggle. The amount of order and disorder in any situation is dictated by the unique configuration of the local struggle between these two forces, if you want to put it that way. But the good news is, these two it's not a Manichaean thing. It doesn't go on forever. These two forces are not quite equally pitted. Over time, novelty wins. Order wins. Order triumphs over disorder and builds higher states of order. So in a way, you could think of the whole process as what engineers call a damped oscillation. That habit is this oscillation in a space of perfection 
and it is eventually damped by the by the surrounding telos toward concrescence. And a lot of the words <clears throat> that I use to talk about this are taken out of Alfred North Whitehead, who's, to my mind, the great unread philosopher of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called Process and Reality, in which he talks, tries to build a general vocabulary for talking about being. And, you know, it comes off as very psychedelic and very chaotic, dynamical kind of anticipation. Check out uh, uh, Whitehead. The the thing which has, you know, made my made novelty theory difficult to sell in terms of the ugly knobs and warts on it as a theory were that it has this built-in crazy assumption, which is that in the very short term, meaning the next 15 or 20 years, the world will, uh, in part, uh, completely transform itself. And so it's in the category with apocalyptarian thinking, millenarian thinking, miraculous thinking, deus ex machinas, uh, squirrely revelations, all of that, all of which I abhor. But you can't escape the mathematical implications once you draw the curve of the asymptotic acceleration into novelty. There's a group of people, you can read their stuff on the internet, they're called extopians or singularists. And they're very hard-headed engineering types, libertarian geeks, not psychedelic, not in spiritual in any sense of the word, and they propagate out (laughs) curves such as the human population curve, the curve of information, number of papers being published, the curve of the amount of energy being released, so forth and so on. All these curves reach infinity somewhere before 2025. What does it mean to say these curves reach infinity? Nobody knows. It's a singularity. It doesn't make sense. It's a mathematical contradiction. What it means is your model is broken. What is going to happen has so many dimensions embedded in it that your simple propagations of curves method of analyzing it are giving you crazy data that that makes no sense. And, you know, I'm being semi-unemployed. I have the leisure to spend many hours a day reading journals and surfing the net and so forth. And I'm telling you, all these esoteric fields of knowledge, all these solid state physics, quantum encryption, uh, drug design, genetic engineering, long base interferometry, on and on and on, these cabals of secret societies, in each case, they're reaching out for the ultimate, uh, the ultimate pieces of knowledge in their field. And no one is coordinating the implications of all this across the face of the rising tidal wave of understanding. Uh, what really is happening is that a, a, a very, you know, I wouldn't say a complete, 
control of the world of matter and energy is coming into being. But a, a, a leap forward is being taken. And all under the aegis of this key concept of information. Uh, information is more primary than time and space, more primary than light and electromagnetism. Information is the stuff of being. It's all you will ever know. It's all you can ever know. The rest are ghostly hypotheses to explain the behavior and the presence uh, of information. And it's almost as though it has a syntactical life of its own. It's almost as though, you know, it's a, it's a virtual life form of some sort that is running on a, pli- on a primate platform. So that was our first clip, kind of a weighty one to sort of introduce you to Terrence McKenna. Yeah, there was a few words in there that I wasn't quite familiar with. Maybe I haven't been studying for the GRE hard enough or something. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, this is something that I think McK- one major difference that we find with McKenna and Leary is that McKenna does not see himself as someone who is selling something to the masses in the way that not that necessarily that Leary did, but you know, Leary, I think was, you know, for him, he he was kind of a salesman. You know, he was he was in some ways selling something, which may have been you know one of the reasons that you know Leary is so, so controversial. McKenna, like I said, he sees himself as much more scholarly in his pursuits, and it comes across certainly in the way he speaks. Um, I think that even for even for people who, you know, do score perfect scores in the GRE, Raymond, McKenna is dense at first. But like I said, since there's, you know, perhaps hundreds of hours of lectures, I think the more you listen to him, the more you kind of get a feel for, you know, without even really necessarily knowing the definition, dictionary definition of every word he uses, you get more of a feel for his intent and his meaning. Well, he's certainly a very interesting figure, you know, and you're right. The, oh, yeah. the academic aspect of it comes across very quickly. But um, he, d- he but he still has maintained some popularity amongst just normal counterculture folks that don't have oh, certainly, his certainly. level of expertise, I'm sure. And part of that is, you know, he sort of hinted at that in this last clip is um, he is well known as being one of the first people to to proclaim 2012 as a major turning point, an apocalypse, if you will, um, in our culture. He was one of the very first people to really say that. And he kind of, he worked through the 70s after his time in the Amazon with his brother, where they, um, I'll go into his his Amazonian stuff a little bit. One of the things that, while he was out there, and like I said, this is detailed in his book, True Hallucinations, he was in the Amazon with his brother. They were searching for a particular native psychedelic substance, they ended up finding psilocybin mushrooms in this particular place where they were, I think at La Chirera in um, somewhere in the Amazon. So they were tripping on mushrooms for, for days, I guess, and um, his brother evidently kind of lost a little bit, had some sort of vision of a ritual that they should perform to, I believe the idea was that this ritual would give birth to the world's soul. So his brother, you know, had a, had this flash where they should perform this ritual with a mushroom, and they did so. And McKenna reports, Terence reports that, um, you know, the ritual went off just as planned, and what his brother said would happen 
what happened, and that was that the mushroom, they had a mushroom set on a stump in front of them, and it was supposed to start glowing blue, and they were supposed to see like a turning earth inside of this glowing blue mushroom. So that's what they saw. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they see, and they, and then um, his brother gets up, runs off into the jungle, throws his watch over a cliff, says, "I'm not going to need this anymore," and um, comes back from the jungle a few days later. And doesn't speak English. I guess speaks gibberish for several days, maybe even several weeks after this. Terence himself doesn't sleep for like forty days, and during this time, he's getting like an alien voice in his head. This is where his sort of alien contact experience comes in. Um, and I guess this alien voice stays with him constantly for the next 40 days or so in the jungle um, where he has an experience where he sees a UFO and like crazy stuff happens. Like I says, he doesn't sleep a wink at all. Um, I guess this voice is speaking to him and he calls this voice the Logos. I guess it sounds like an insectoid alien AI kind of voice. It comes back off and on over the next few years. And over the next few years, he comes up with this theory the novelty theory is what he calls uh, calls it, um, the and it's sort of based in part around the I Ching, which you know Raymond, it's a Chinese ancient Chinese divination system. Right, right, right. This voice tells him that um, there's a particular the oldest sequence, the King Wen sequence of the I Ching hexagrams, holds some kind of information about time, the nature of time, and. I, I, what it comes down to is he sort of figures, makes some mathematical equations based on the I Ching, this King Wen sequence of the I Ching, and comes up with this time wave, which he calls time wave zero. And what this, it's a, it's a wave of novelty. It measures the rise and fall of novelty through history. You with me so far? Yes, but we might want to explain the idea of novelty a little bit better to some of the people in the audience, perhaps. So this is kind of like a, this is kind of like a, an interest, it's, it's kind of a, something hard to grasp, I think. Uh, the idea is, is that time, according to McKenna, fluctuates. In other words, there are times when certain things that are considered unlikely are more likely to happen. In other words, chance fluctuates, likelihood fluctuates. So he, he, based on the King Wen sequence of the I Ching, he makes a graph, finds that this graph is sort of fractal in that it repeats itself on various levels. Okay? So you can take a, you know, a year and graph the wave for that year. And um, if you look at like a you know, 6,000 year graph, that 6,000 year graph looks the same as the year, year long graph, which looks the same as like a five minute graph. In other words, this same pattern repeats infinitely, smaller and smaller. Right. Okay. Now, he found that when you p- put this graph against history, all of human history, the best fit, according to Terence McKenna, the best fit for this graph has the very end of the graph going into infinite novelty in November, December of 2012. And it's funny because when we talk about 2012, we hear about this whole mind calendar thing, yeah, right? Yeah. And didn't he, it have a similar pattern in it where it sort of goes right. fractal at that moment? That's what happens? Yeah, that's exactly right. And McKenna had no knowledge, or ex- knowledge of or experience with the Mayan calendar when he formulated this theory. 
or when the voice formulated it for him, I guess. Only later did he find out that the um, Mayan calendar ends around the same time. So that's his role in the whole 2012 phenomenon, is that he sort of formulated a, a calendar that ends up you know, ending. Or it's hard, really hard to say what happens. For McKenna, in 2012, we sort of uh, accelerate into infinite novelty. And that's all he really says. He has various theories about what that means, but doesn't really say what it, you know, he doesn't say this is what this means, the world's going to end, you know. Um, So that's, the the, the next clip we're going to listen to is actually kind of interesting uh, and sort of related.
the idea that we're figuring out how to reset the compass of the self through community, through ecstatic dance, through psychedelics, sexuality, intelligence, intelligence. This is what we have to have to make the forward escape into hyperspace. So that was the um, Terrence McKenna with Space Time Continuum from the album Alien Dreamtime. Great album. Go out and buy it. It's actually one of the few Terrence McKenna recordings that you have to buy. Um, the rest, you get so much free stuff online, you might as well go buy that CD. Um, so donate to <laughs> Space Time. McKenna, by the way, is dead, so he doesn't see any of the profits. Um, <laughs> But uh, So one of the things that you probably gathered from that clip is that McKenna is also very interested in psychedelics and shamanism, which makes sense given that you know his, a lot of uh, the experiences that sort of formulate his life are related to psychedelics, especially his experiences in the Amazon and his experience with DMT and that sort of thing. Want to go right into another, another clip, Raymond, another clip or two? Yeah, sounds good to me. I like how he talked about before we do. I like how he yeah. talks about like tattoos and piercings yeah. and things like that, you know. And when he was talking about this, this is back in the mid '90s. This stuff was starting to catch on. Now it's completely obligatory. Almost. It's like a, it's completely integrated into our culture. Yeah, yeah. like uh, you know, high school student turns 18, whatever, goes out and gets the tattoo or whatever. It's just sort of like yeah. a matter of course. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, it was sort of just like a pat, thought of as just a passing fad, but now it's in an industry that won't go, that isn't going to go away, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So what's this, what's this next clip we got here? This, these next two clips are more specifically about psychedelics. The first one is about uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is uh, interestingly enough, the most powerful uh, tryptamine, the most powerful tryptamine psychedelic that we know of. But it also um, is, I think, the most widely occur, naturally occurring of uh, the tryptamine psychedelics and actually uh, is manufactured in your brain, Raymond. My brain? Your brain, oh, yeah. Oh, man. Well, how, how are we going to get it out of there? <laughs> well, good question. Maybe you just want to keep it in there because there are, and I don't know how true this is, but it's. I think it's pretty certain that DMT is released when we die. Um, but it's, I've also heard that it's released when we dream. I'm not sure about that. So don't quote me on that, but look it up, do some research, figure out for yourself. The thing is, even though it's manufactured in our brains, it is illegal. DMT is illegal, uh, for most people. Uh, there are some religious groups in the United States that are able to import DMT containing beverages, uh, for spiritual religious purposes, and it is legal for religious use in Brazil and elsewhere in the Amazon. Um, but his experiences with DMT, uh, typically, I'm sure he had some experience with ayahuasca, but I think the one that he talks about in this first one are uh, with smoked DMT. On DMT and on psilocybin, and they are closely related, psilocybin being 4-phosphoryloxane and dimethyltryptamine, the phosphorylated form of DMT, though they do not degrade into one pathway in the body. It's a parallel pathway. DMT is NN-dimethyltryptamine. Uh, these psychedelics particularly seem to impact the language-forming portion of the brain. 
And this produces truly bizarre states of mind because it's the language-forming part of your brain that is explaining to you moment to moment what is going on. You know, now I am eating, now I am having sex, now I am flashing on DMT. And when that part of the brain gets foobarred, then you really do have a puzzlement on your hands. Because the the machinery of description itself has been caught up in the process. Uh, On DMT, these entities, these machine-like, diminutive, shape-shifting, faceted, machine-elf-type creatures that come bounding out of the state. They come bounding out of my stereo speakers if I have my eyes open. They are like, uh, you know, they're elfin embodiments of syntactical intent. Somehow syntax which is normally the invisible architecture behind language, has moved into the foreground. And you can see it. I mean, it's doing calisthenics and acrobatics in front of you. It's crawling all over you. And and what's happened is that your categories have been scrambled or something. And this thing, which is normally supposed to be invisible and in the background and, and an abstraction, has come forward and is doing handsprings right in front of you. And the thing makes linguistic objects. It sheds syntactical objectification so that it comes toward you. They come toward you. They divide. They merge. They're bounding. They're screaming. They're squeaking. And they hold out objects which they sing into existence or which they pull out of some other place. And these things are, are uh, you know, like jewels and lights, but also like consomme and old farts and yesterday and high speed. In other words, they are made of non-material, they are made of juxtapositions of qualities that are impossible in three-dimensional space. What they're like is, and in fact, this is probably what they are, what they're like is they're like uh, three and four and five dimensional puns. And you know how the pleasure of a pun lies in the fact that it is, it's not that the meaning flickers from A to B, it's that it's simultaneously A and B. And when the pun is really funny, it's an A, B, C, D pun. And it's simultaneously all these things. Well, that quality, which in our experience can only occur to an acoustical output or a glyph, which stands for an acoustical output, in other words, a printed pun, in the DMT world, objects can do this. Objects can simultaneously manifest more than one nature at once. And for some, and like a pun, the result is always funny. It's amusing. You cannot help but be delighted. This thing doing this thing. Well, so these syntactic or these linguistic elves are pulling this stuff out and gesturing with it, pushing it in your face, saying, 
look at this, look at this, and you are fascinated, you know, pulled into it, because each one is, you know, what? How can this be happening? It's, it's not, we're not in the world anymore. We're not in the world. No artist, however gifted, could make one of these objects, because they have qualities Extremely difficult to language qualities that no object in this world has. And, and so you're trying to wrap your mind and say, my God, you know, what is it? Because in spite of the fact that it's just a little thing, you can tell by looking at it that its implications are earth-shaking. In other words, that if I could suddenly pull one of these things out of hyperspace and we would all look at it, we would all realize that that was the ball game right there. That somehow this proved it, was it, did it, ended it, started it, made it clear. Uh, how can this be? Well, I don't know. You had to be there, sort of. Uh, and then what lies be and then you what lies behind this, or as you try to analyze the situation, you realize that uh, that these objects that these things are making are made by utterances that sound is how this trick is done, and meanwhile, these things are saying or beaming at you the general vibe is strangely enough, do not give way to astonishment. Do not abandon yourself to wonder. Get a grip. Try to get a grip and notice what we're doing. Pay attention. This is the mantra. Pay attention. Pay attention. Well, somebody once asked me, you know, is it dangerous? And the answer is only if you fear death by astonishment. But, but death by astonishment is entirely possible. I'm not kidding. I mean, you are so fucking astonished that you, you've never felt your astonishment circuits get a workout like that before. I mean, what is astonishment in this world? It's like, oh, uh, this is a different form of astonishment. This is, uh, you know. I think he broke out of his uh, academic shell with that one, Joe. <laughs> so fucking astonished. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's um, McKenna talking about DMT, and um, you know, there there's a, a lot of clips of him sort of describing that experience, and that's just one of many where he sort of goes into what his experience with DMT are, and he claims or claimed that. Um, Every time he smoked DMT, it was always the same. It was these entities trying to teach him how to make something by speaking it into existence. And so that sort of shows his in, uh, one of his major interests, which is his interest in language, especially as it relates to, um, especially as it relates to psychedelics, but also especially as language relates to the nature of reality, which is one of my great interests. Right. Incidentally, you know. So. He had a career that wasn't marked by legal troubles or any great adventures with other countercultural icons or anything like that. I don't know that he was ever arrested for anything. He more or less stayed under the radar 
uh, he didn't speak in front of, you know, 30,000 hippies in Golden Gate Park, you know. He was more of the type where he would go, he, his lecture circuit was among, you know, people who who sort of knew more or less what he was about. He would, you know, also speak at, like, uh, some festivals or raves or small workshops of people. And, you know, he wrote he wrote several books, but for the most part, he was more of a philosopher than a showman. Although, you know, he was also, a, a, I think, a good vocal performer in that, you know, he has a very interesting voice and sort of his cadence is also very interesting. I agree. I, I enjoy listening to him more than Leary. You know, with yeah, Leary, yeah. it's always like you're, it's almost like you're waiting for him to say something. With McKenna, it's, it's like this constant stream of information coming out of his mouth, you know. Not to cast any dispersions on leary himself it's just his voice you know that's all it's sure yeah so what else what else do we have to say about this guy i mean he's he has definitely helps to bring these sorts of ideas into into the light for another generation of people that's that's certainly true absolutely and that's and that's really i think his legacy is that uh you know he was able to do what what I think Leary probably would have liked to have done, except McKenna was able to learn the lessons that Leary had to learn by experience. And that was that, you know, the best way to spread the word is not by going on TV and proclaiming your guruhood, but rather, you know, approach these things in a very sober, cautious, humble way scholarly and people will take you more seriously and be able to actually get more out of their own experiences should they choose to have them. So I guess that's about all there is to say about McKenna. I mean, one of the, like I said, one of the things that was, I think, difficult for the, in this particular episode to find McKenna clips because there are there's so much good stuff out there. And I, Raymond, completely recommend going online and finding uh, as many Terrence McKenna clips as you can and listening to all of them. There's actually, you can find some just by searching online and don't just search YouTube because there's like some four minute types clips, that sort of thing. If you look at other other places like uh, lycium.org and I think deoxy.org, there are, um, I mean, like hour and a half long lectures, scores of them. But there's also uh, this great podcast called Psychedelic Salon these clips were used without permission from the psychedelic salon. Big props to to that podcast, though, because not only for uh, making these clip, you know, these lectures available, which some of these, uh, some of the lectures I got from psychedelic salon, I had had that I had downloaded a while ago that then lost the MP3s for it. Um, psychedelic salon has sort of re re broadcasted them as a podcast and. Uh, it's, that's a great podcast. They have more than just Terrence McKenna. There's a lot of great stuff on there. So check that podcast out. Just to sort of wrap it up, Terrence McKenna, uh, he ended up a few more things about him. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in language or evolution, listen to Terrence McKenna. If you're interested in physics and time, listen, listen to Terrence McKenna. Um, he was just a you know really broad, prolific guy. He ended up dying in... 2000, April 3rd, 2000, at 53 years old, he had a highly aggressive form of brain cancer that he found out about in 1999. So, so, so what's the legacy of these guys? What is well, it that they've I mean, left behind with? I mean, we've, we've told a story, and, and there's obvious 
implications within a subculture here? What yeah. what have they given to the culture at large, do you think? You know, I think it's something that they both advocated was really a psychedelic society, a psychedelic revolution in some in some sense. Not, not, not anything violent or, you know, even anything uh, that in your face. But what they both advocated was a real change in the way that we do things, not as necessarily like American culture, but as a species, as a whole species, uh, a new approach to the way that we manage our world, both in terms of technology and our environment uh, and and culture in general. And I think that they were both heavily concerned with authoritarianism and culture. And I think that that, that comes across in, in what Leary was saying in the 60s and 70s and what Terrence McKenna was saying in the 80s and 90s. And I think... Uh, this, the last clip we have is sort of a great thing to go out on, Raymond. Are, are we going to come back after this clip? Well, why don't we just go ahead and go through our announcements for the evening, and we'll play it as sort of a parting shot, you know? That sounds good. That sounds good. If you like our show, go ahead and visit our website, www.outdoorradio.net. That's right. It's been down a little bit over the month of December. We're sorry about that. WOG switched over their servers, and... We're actually transferring to our own Out There Radio server. That's right. So, so look for that coming up soon. Also, look for two new episodes coming up after this one in the near future. And, you know, of course, the second one being the final episode about their radio. And if, if you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you know, we've been asking for your montages. If you want to put together an audio montage, I love that word, of your favorite well, clips from the show, you're welcome to do so. And we'll. Or if you want to record your own short farewell message, do so. Yeah, that too. We really do appreciate it. And, you know, if you want to send us an email, outthereradio at gmail.com if you're having any problems getting files, if you just want to ask us a question, if you want to tell us how horrible we are, whatever, it's great. Like I said, drop us an email. What else we got, Joe? Our forums should be back up on our website within a month or so, maybe maybe sooner than that. It's just going to take us a little while. So yeah. sorry if you were keeping up with the forums before. Like I said, WOG has switched over their servers, and it's uh, caused us a few issues getting things back together. So tell your friends we're back on the air. There's a new episode to download. Check it out. You know, uh, Jay, you got anything else you want to mention before we go? I don't think, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next yeah, episode. Take care. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com. What civilization is, is six billion people trying to make themselves happy by standing on each other's shoulders and kicking each other's teeth in. It's, a, it's not a pleasant situation. And yet, you can stand back and look at this planet and see that we have the money, the power, the medical understanding, the scientific know-how, the love, and the community to produce a kind of human paradise. But we are led by the least among us, the least intelligent, the least noble, the least visionary. We are led by the least among us. And we do not uh, fight back against the dehumanizing values that are handed down as control icons. 
this is something, I mean, I don't really want to get off on this tear because it's a lecture in itself, but culture is not your friend. Culture is for other people's convenience and the convenience of various institutions, churches, companies, tax collection schemes, what have you. It is not your friend. It, it insults you. It disempowers you. It uses and abuses you. None of us are well treated by culture. Uh, and, and yet we glorify you know, the creative potential of the individual, the rights of the individual. We understand the felt presence of experience is what is most important. But the culture is a perversion. It fetishizes objects creates consumer mania, it preaches endless forms of false happiness, endless forms of false understanding in the form of squirrely religions and silly cults. It, it invites people to diminish themselves and dehumanize themselves by behaving like machines, meme, meme processors of memes passed down from uh, Madison Avenue and Hollywood and what have you. How do we fight that? It's a question worth answering. Same question as how do we fight that? I think that by creating art, art, man was not put on this planet to toil in the mud. Or the God who put us on this planet to toil in the mud is no God I want to have any part of. It's some kind of Gnostic demon. It's some kind of cannibalistic demiurge that should be thoroughly renounced and uh, rejected. By putting the art pedal to the metal, we really, I think, maximize our humanness and become much more necessary and incomprehensible to the machine.